Welcome to Digital Health Talks. Each week, we meet with the healthcare leaders making a measurable difference in equity, access, and quality. Hear about what tech is worth investing in and what isn't as we focus on the innovations that deliver. Join me, Megan Antonelli, and my friend, Shahid Shah, for our weekly No BS Deep Dives into what's really making an impact in healthcare. Welcome to Health Impact 5. I'm Janae Sharp, the founder of the Sharp Index, and I am thrilled to sit down today with Dr. Chris Gibbons. And Dr. Gibbons is passionate about digital health, health innovation, and health equity. And these are all things that I care about. Dr. Gibbons is also the equity and innovation advisor to the American Medical Association and the chief health innovation advisor to the Federal Communications Commission. He works at the intersection of equity and innovation every day. And I am looking forward to discussing your work with you and to talk about your participation in the upcoming Node Health Digital Medicine Conference. So first, I'd love to thank you for coming today. And I would love if you could share with the audience, tell us about yourself, tell us about your work and what you're most excited about. Well, thanks for having me, Janae. It's really an honor for me to be with you. I'm a physician originally by training. I trained in surgery and preventive medicine many years ago and I uh, had a long career at Johns Hopkins. I was the associate director of the Johns Hopkins Urban Health Institute for almost 15 years. And this was, you know, over 20 years ago, I began to have an interest in technology. I remember when I started that position, you know, Johns Hopkins, like many tertiary academic medical centers, are located essentially in urban ghettos, and Johns Hopkins is really no different than that. They're trying to change it now, like other places. But I remember looking out of my window from my office and seeing, you know, urban blight, and I said, you know, there are a lot of people who have gone before me uh, on this road trying to fix this and, and hasn't been able to. And at some point, I'm, I'm going to leave. Um, I want to be successful, and um, I'm not going to think that I could do the same thing they did and come with a, a different result. And so I, I wanted to find something different, something that had better potential, perhaps, to succeed. About that same time, many years ago, I heard about this new thing called e-health is what they called it at the time, that are never heard heard about that before, uh, learned more about it and decided that was going to be at the center of my career. I was a young uh, doctor at the time, and, and I decided my career would be at the intersection of health, e-health, technology, and underserved populations. And that's what I began to work on there at Hopkins. And now, many years later, I run an equity-focused digital health innovation and transformation firm that focuses largely on the same kinds of things. I think that's critical. And I love that. Like we need more focus on historically under-resourced or underserved um, individuals, especially when it relates to things that are currently big topics in healthcare, you know, AI and data-driven worlds. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear more. We're going to talk a lot about that, but I'd love to hear more about, about your journey to that. Let's level set for the audience. What is that like right now? Yeah. Like there are AI-driven healthcare systems, and then there are all these needs with public health. And there are also outcomes we're hearing about that aren't great. Mm -hmm. Like, what does the landscape look like in your yeah. Great question. Great question. Well, I just told you a little bit of how I got started. Right. And back then, 
technology, AI, it wasn't a thing in healthcare, uh, dating myself a little bit. But when I first came to Johns Hopkins, there was no EMR there. We were still writing orders by hand. And it was while I was there that the first EMRs were, were installed. So it was a, a whole different kind of world. But because of that, I came to this whole idea very differently than many of my colleagues. Most of my colleagues in healthcare began thinking seriously about some forms of technology, either when EHRs were initially pushed out during the Obama administration, or most recently with the pandemic, when we had to rely on, on technology essentially to survive as a nation, as well as a healthcare system. But back then, you know, decades before that, when I started having this interest, I had no no blinders on. Most of my colleagues were saying, well, it has to be technology in the hands of doctors, or it has to be technology that touches the EMR. I was just thinking technology in the hands of doctors, patients, anybody that could help potentially improve the care process or the care outcomes. And so I came with a much broader perspective. Over the years, it's led me to many different things. And now most recently, one of the, the, the biggest areas that is on the radar screen is AI. And we spend a lot of time thinking about that in this context. AI is a number of different things. And most recently, generative AI has I believe extreme AI in general, technology in general, but generative AI has a lot of potential to enable us to do things we never did before and accomplish things that we weren't not even possible. And I do think closing, actually closing the gaps in inequities uh, and removing that problem is potentially one thing that new forms of technology, including AI and generative AI may well enable us to do if we do it right, right? That's the key question here. Critical. If yeah. we don't do it right, it could make things worse, a lot worse, a lot faster. Yeah, it could also, you know, use a data structure to solidify unhealthy systems. So let's talk more about that, like the potential of AI and generative AI. There are a couple of things that I thought about as, you know, potential issues. You know, one, the transparency of a system. Mm -hmm. Two, you know, the data sets we're working with, mm -hmm. or three, like you mentioned, like it does have the potential to make things worse. So maybe we could go through some of those, like what, why is data transparency important? And why is that part of it? You know, you're talking about, it doesn't matter which, it doesn't matter which um, source that the data comes from. And I think healthcare is seeing that this expanded vision of data can, will come from everywhere. And right. what does that mean? So I'd love to hear. Yeah, data data is foundational to everything, right? At least if you're making evidence-based decisions. Now, if you're not doing that, then maybe you make decisions from some other uh, mechanism. But data is foundational. On the provider side of the coin, you know, data is how we understand the world. That's how we understand the tools that we use. And so it's important to understand the information and data, how these models are created, how they work, and how they generate their answers as one way of building confidence uh, in them or lack of confidence, knowing how to tweak them, knowing how when they're not performing as the way that we want them to, or knowing when they are 
you know, on the patient side, it's very similar. I mean, if we don't know what's happening, if patients don't know what's happening with the data that they are ostensibly putting in or is being collected from them, and furthermore, if they distrust what potentially might happen, it gets into the wrong hands, it's turned against them, it's used against them, they're likely to mistrust it also and tend not to use it whenever they can or just uh, tell you what they think you want to know rather than what's really true, which defeats uh, the whole purpose. You know, particularly with generative AI, we talk about data sets a lot, and there is, we it's well known that there, it's almost impossible to have a truly, totally 100% unbiased data set. And in some cases, bias is good. You want to have biases in your data sets to over-represent some populations that uh, are not large, let's say, and you want to be able to make evidence-based decisions about them. But it, but I think it's important to, to, to note that the bias data set is just one place in which bias can be introduced into AI and generative AI models. There, there are at every stage of development of the models and testing of the models, these biases can be introduced based on the decisions or the assumptions that are made about the problem, about the setting in which the problems occur, about the target, target populations through which you're trying to influence. So we could theoretically fix the database problem, the bias data set problem, and still not fix the bias in AI problem. It's a much bigger, much more complicated progress. But having said that, I do believe we can make good progress on it. Look, we've put people on the moon, so hard is not a reason not to do something, uh, but we have to go in with our eyes wide open and not try to act like it's not a real problem and ignore it hit it head on and we'll make progress and we'll eventually overcome. Yeah, I like that. that we'll, we're going to make progress. I'm also interested in what you were talking about with, you know, the steps to making sure it's clear and how we have transparency there. Have you seen any examples of that or, or what does that actually look like in practice? Well, there are steps being taken. As you know, there are people who generate these models. There are people who develop the algorithms. And then there are people who use them. And those two groups are not 100%. And so sometimes, at least to the general public and sometimes even to providers, the information, the data, the understanding of how these models were created or how they work is not clear. And so that has in the past plagued some for understanding and wanting to use. And in fact, they've often be referred to black box AI because you put it in, it just works. The challenge with that though is- It's like uh, restarting your computer. You just turn it off, turn it back on. We're good. Exactly, exactly, right? But the problem obviously is then in those kinds of systems, you tend to value them or, or evaluate them based on if they output what you expect to be outputted. Sounds logical, right? But the reality That's is- risky. That's risky. Yeah, if, if what you expect to be output is biased in the first place and you get that, you're only reinforcing biases. You're not actually doing what you think you ought to do. Um, so that's the problem, that's one of the problems from an equity perspective with those kinds of models, and there are plenty of them out there. There is a large push now uh, for transparent models, explainable AI models. These are all terms that are being used 
um, to develop AI and AI models in ways that are more transparent to the users, to the providers who use them. Uh, and then comes generative AI, which is at a whole different level altogether. But I think uh, the principles are the same there as well. Right, to have transparency. I would love to talk about a little bit more about what you were saying with being proactive, you know, proactively facing those challenges. It sounds like we've talked a little bit about being proactive about creating a better data set and creating, you know, eliminating a black box. As we talk about healthcare and generative AI and ethics, like what does that look like with a, a proactive health equity lens? Yeah, I think it means a number of things. One is, again, recognize we have a problem and hit it straight on. Don't try to ignore it. Don't try to downplay it like it's a, really a not problem. We've got already, not just sort of thinking about it in the future, we've got plenty of examples of where real harm has come to patients. Just one, I'll mention one or two. We There was an algorithm that was developed for doctors to use to help make treatment decisions. Uh, it was being used by a number of the large hospital systems in New York City for many years. It was thought to be a really good thing. Then a, a, a series of researchers came along and said, hey, let's study the outcomes to see how well that algorithm did. This was an FDA approved algorithm. And lo and behold, when they studied a large number of the patients who had uh, whose doctors had used that algorithm, they found that this algorithm was prescribing the wrong treatment for African-Americans as much as 47% of the time. And at the same time, prescribing the right treatments for non-African-Americans most of the time. Same algorithm being used. Obviously that algorithm is not being used anymore. The, the pulse oximeter, the thing that we put on your finger during the pandemic to know how much oxygen is in your blood, that does not work as well in people with darker skin tones. And therefore, doctors were likely uh, recommending the wrong treatments sometimes based on that FDA-approved device because it was not, it was giving incorrect information to the doctors. The sad part about that example is, in fact, we knew that was the case before the pandemic for decades and did nothing about it. But here we are. Now we know. Now there is a movement to know better and to do better. And so the first thing is recognizing this is not just a, a theoretic problem. This is a real problem that's already affecting millions of people today. And then, too, there are things that, that can be done, even if they're not perfect fixes yet, you have to base them on the problems that are there that we know of in AI. For example, um, it's been shown that these models, they're not one and done. Once you create them, they don't work that way and work perfectly forever. They actually degrade over time. Everything else, we all get old, right? <laughs> well, these models sometimes I over... <laughs> Yeah, right, These models, sometimes over a very short period of time, if you were to ask them to do the same, perform the same function or ask the same question uh, a few months or, or years later, it would not do as well as answer, at answering that question or doing performing those functions as it did when you started. So like everything else, they can't just be assumed to always be right. We have to monitor them. We have to know when they're not uh, working right. That's sort of one problem. And 
Another problem is they, they're good at answering some kinds of questions and, and doing some kind of tasks, but others they don't do so well at. And sometimes when they're not able to, to do it, uh, particularly on the generative AI, they make up an answer. But generative AI, it's called hallucination. It's a real thing. But generative AI is so good at hallucinating that the answers seem plausible. And unless you dig down deep, you would not know uh, just by looking at it that this is an incorrect answer. And so the, the challenge is, you know, some people might make the argument, oh, that might happen, whatever, 5% of the time, 3% of the time. So it's good. Yeah, I, I don't buy that. I mean, because in the if you're the person that it's telling the wrong treatment to or giving the wrong answer to, and then treatment is based on that, and you get an illness or you die as a result of that, that's 100% failure in you. And we can't tolerate a system like that. So a system where we don't know when this is happening and we don't do anything about it is worse. We know it's happening. So let's find out how much it's happening and try to develop ways to, to stop it from happening. Increased testing of all kinds in, involving people from these marginalized populations in the design and development of these models. You wouldn't ask me as a doctor to come in and do your electrical work in your house. And for good reason, I don't know how to do it, even if I'm doing best that I can. Why do we believe that people with one background are the best people to design models for people with entirely different backgrounds for which they have no credible expertise nor experience? It doesn't make any sense the assumptions that they're going to make about their target users under the best circumstances, doing the best they can, are not likely to be the best ones that could be made for those populations. So involving them in the design and development of these algorithms iteratively over time is one area that is being advocated and shows promise in, in significantly improving the development of these models and lowering the risks of these kinds of things happening. So these are some of the things that we can do right now. We've got to do more work to find out more work and to find out more ways to stop it, stop it but let's keep going forward. Yeah, I think that's important. I like what you said about the importance of updating your models. Because if we're thinking about health interventions, like, and, and something that we've developed with AI, like, ideally, once they're released into the world, they'll have an impact. Right. So you can't keep doing the same thing if someone already took care of that. That's right. Um, you need to update that data. And the other part that you're talking about at the end, I'd love to kind of look at that from a practical framework. You know, you work a lot in advising people how to put together those ethical, you know, decision-making. And we talk to a lot of people who they're making decisions for a health system, for an insurance plan about AI. They've heard these stories about outcomes and they need, you know, a sort of checklist or a way to look at that. So who needs to be involved in that? And, and could you give like two or three things that would be on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, great question. You're right. And more and more people are saying, okay, we believe you. This is a problem. What do we do about it? I'm a developer. I want to develop a tool more equitably or uh, that has less risk of this happening. What do we do about it? And for a long time, not a lot had been, you know, put together in a way to help these individuals. But uh, in a project that I was uh, working on with the American Medical Association over the last several years, we've put together, uh, this is one resource uh, that's available, we've put together what we what seems to be the first uh, uh, toolkit around this very topic. 
how to uh, develop uh, digital solutions more equitably and how to assess tools to see if there is actual evidence that the tool is likely to be more equitable than not or less equitable. And we call it the in full health toolkit because it's an assessment with examples and things and it's freely available. Uh, the first version of it is on if you go to infullhealth.org and you can download it for free from there. It's out there now. It's It was made about three, three years ago. So right as the pandemic was hitting, so things slowed down a little bit, but people haven't heard much about it. And now it's time to to uh, update it a bit, particularly the section on uh, AI that's there, because a lot has happened in the last uh, three or four years in AI. Um, but this is a resource that's out there for developers, for solution developers, or for those who uh, evaluate these solutions in one form or another, or for those who purchase uh, solutions and want to, pur to purchase solutions that have evidence uh, of not creating uh, inequities or helping to close inequities. So this is one of the tools that I've been working on that we've gotten that's out there. There isn't another one that we know of like this. There are principles and frameworks about these are the kinds of things you should do or, or stay away from. But this is, and those can be helpful as well. This is an actual toolkit that sort of directs step-by-step. Step. Did you think about this? Did you do this? Document this as an evidence base for these moving in this direction. Oh, I didn't even know I was teeing up your tool. You know, I just, I'm glad that it exists because that's an important, that's an important resource. Let's, I have one more question. Sure. Well, two more. The first one is, you talked a lot about creating with populations that are impacted. And as we know, like a lot of, even during the pandemic and some of the things happening now in healthcare, there are certain populations that are disproportionately negatively impacted. Mm -hmm. Also, many of those people have less trust in the healthcare system. So what does that look like? Like what is co-creating or like, like you mentioned it, like involving people in all those trials, what does that look like? Yeah, great. Another great question. You know, what's sad is that we've gotten, we as a society and parts of our world have gotten so used to doing it without that we don't know how to do it. There's actually a lot written about how to do it. There's a science about how to do it. There are several scientific fields from uh, human factors and ergonomics and, uh, and in the computer sciences literature that really, they start from a base that's saying, hey, we shouldn't consider technologies as a thing all by themselves. You should consider them as really what they call socio-technical systems. So they are integrations of people and technology and their nuances and understandings that you need from both sides in order to build the thing to work adequately with the people to achieve the outcome that you want. So there is actually a ton written, not we're so having, We're having so a literally blonde moment where you're like, what, like it's hard? You're like, <laughs> it's literally written in the book. <laughs> oh yeah, tons of books and not just over the last few years, many years, I have books dating back to the 70s 
where this stuff was talked about, about how to do it and how we need to do better at it. But nonetheless, there, there are ways in the, in the computer sciences literature and more people are, are familiar with user-centered design and human-centered design. Some people even talking about humanity-centered design practices now. These, this is a popular way of thinking about it. In the, in the um, public health sciences, community-based participatory approaches to design and development have been advocated for a long time. Uh, right. So for those that are, are, are interested in doing this, um, there is a lot of information out there. We and others are working on bringing it together in a format that's easily digestible for those in this field that haven't seen it before, but the evidence is there. Right. So it's, it might be new to them, but not new. Right. That brings up the other question. Do you think we're going the right direction? If all these things already existed and we're able, and we have access, where's the gap? And where's the future? Like, is there hope or is this just, well, we know what we're supposed to do, but we're not going to do it. Oh, no, there's absolute okay. hope. If I didn't have hope for this, if I didn't think this was a possible, I, I, I'd go shoot myself or something. I don't know. But I mean, no, there's absolutely hope. You know, as a world, as a society, as a nation, unfortunately, we have tend to do things in silos. And those silos often don't talk to each other, and therein lies the problem, right? But one of the things that excites me about this, if you're going to solve these problems of inequity, it's inherently trans, multi, and cross-disciplinary, right? No one person, no one group, no one sector can solve it all by themselves. We're going to have to work together. But therein lies the challenge. That often is hard to do. That's why it hasn't happened yet, because it's often easier to just think, talk, and work with those who are trained and think and understand like you do. But nonetheless, we're seeing more and more people coming together from disparate and different disciplines, not because they just want to, but it's becoming recognized. We're all in this together and we all sink or swim together. So we might as well work together so that we can thrive together. So it's beginning to happen. And I'm very bullish on the future and think that we should continue going forward as tough as it may be on doing that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that because I was, you want to be aware of the challenges, but also it's nice to know that there, there are people who are trained in this and who are trained in improving things. So, and you're one of them and you'll be at the digital medicine conference in, in December. I love, you know, lastly, fun question. Like, what are you most excited about? at the event. Yeah, you know, I'm really looking forward to that event. It's really a great event because some conferences I go to, they're show and tell conferences. Here's the new big shiny thing we're developing. And those are great to, to learn yeah. what's out there. This, some conferences are the, you know, the sort of highbrow academic conferences that, you know, the general audience really can't connect with because it's just too much. But this one is kind of a mix of the best of the both worlds. We do have uh, some vendors bringing some of their products there, um, but it's really about understanding the, the evidence and understanding the, the, the basis for going forward in this field and talking about that and bringing people together 
to create the kind of world that we all want to see and are trying to get to. So it's such a collaborative event. The, the colleagues that are there, the innovations that are there, I'm really excited not only to share on a panel about AI and equity in the future, but to learn from others who are looking at other perspectives and other parts of this puzzle and figure out new ways of working together to achieve the goal. I love that. Like new ways of working together will be critical. I want to thank you for being part of Health Impact and for meeting with me today. And more than that, I want to thank you for your work to where you took something and you decided it was going to be better and made it part of your mission. So well, well, thank you, Janae. It's been a pleasure being with you today. Thank you for, you know, being the voice that, that gets the voice out there and that's happening and letting other people know because that's critical and that's how we all come together. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this week's Health Impacts Digital Health Talk. Don't miss another podcast. Subscribe at digitalhealthtalks.com. And to join us at our next face-to-face event, visit healthimpactlive.com.